0: Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity to come and, and look at your word. We ask you to guide and lead us as we look at this end times section that we're looking at and that you will show us what you would have us to show and guide us in your son's name. Amen. All right. Two weeks ago, we were talking about the vision that uh, Isaiah had of the end times and the calamities that were coming. And uh, we We ended on uh, chapter four verse one because verse one fit into the previous chapter and that's where I reiterated what is so true is to remember that the chapter and verses are not inspired, they were added by man and they're not always perfect. They sometimes split thoughts up where they shouldn't split them up and that was one where it talked about seven women and that day would take hold of one man which is talking about how bad things were going to be And so we ended with that one, and we're going to be on chapter 4, verse 2 today. In that day shall the branch of the Lord be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and comely for them that are escaped of Israel. And it shall come to pass that he that is left in Zion and he that remains in Jerusalem shall be called holy, even every one that is ridden among the living in Jerusalem. When the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and shall have purged the blood of of Jerusalem from the midst thereof by the spirit of judgment and by the spirit of burning, and the Lord will create upon every dwelling place in in Mount Zion and upon her assemblies a cloud of smoke by day and a shining of flaming fire by night, for upon all the glory shall be a defense. And there shall be a tabernacle for a shadow in in the daytime for from the heat and for a place of refuge and for a covert from the storm and from rain. All right. We're here still talking about the end of the tribulation period, entering into the millennial kingdom, which we've talked about several times in Jeremiah and now in in Isaiah. And just to reiterate the, at the beginning of the seven years of, of, uh, tribulation the church will be taken out in a in, a, in the rapture it's snatching away Satan will be basically in charge still under direction from God but will be in charge for seven years and we'll be trying to destroy Israel God will protect Israel and at the end of the seven-year period Satan will be bound for a thousand years those who have taken the mark of the beast will be sent into hell to await the final judgment and Jesus will reign for a 1,000 years. At the end of that 1,000-year period, Jesus, uh, Satan will be released from hell to have one last attack against God, and then we'll go into the white throne judgment, and then Satan and all those who have rejected Jesus will be cast into the lake of fire for eternity. And this is this peri- uh, part of that period of this, uh, the closing out of the tribulation and getting into the millennial kingdom. All right? We were at the end of the seven years and coming into, in this particular section, coming into the thousand year reign, just to get you the time frame of this prophecy. And it uh, says, in that day, what day? Well, the same day that he's been talking about for the last uh, uh, chapter uh, in verse uh, 4, and t- uh, uh, chapter 4, verse 2, uh, chapter 3, verses 18. Um, you know, uh, chapter two, verses twenty, verses chapter two, verses seventeen. During at the end of that tribulation period, okay. And we just want to bring you. This is why we know what he's talking about. He's in that day, and this phrase is used frequently, especially by um, Isaiah. It would be the the tribula- the. the the tribulation of Jacob the trials of Jacob is known by many many different uh, terms for the New Testament it's called the tribulation period and that is when Israel will be under attack and siege by Satan and Satan is going to try hard to destroy them and again we've told you why does Satan want Israel destroyed well before Jesus came it was because Jesus would be of the tribe of Judah and would be the king so if he could get rid of Israel before then, Jesus would not have been born, according to all the prophecies. Since then, it's because Israel plays a key role in the end times predictions. So if he can get rid of Israel, even today, he can say, see, God, you didn't know what you were talking about. I was able to get rid of Israel. So his goal is always get rid of Israel because of how important they are to God in prophecy. And so his whole focus is against them. And we see all kinds of strange things. We have Christian churches that say that the Christian church has replaced Israel and all the promises of Israel belong to the church, and that is not scriptural. We do have a special place with God, and we have had since Jesus was in this world till now. But when the tribulation, before the tribulation period, God is going to take the church and say all the focus is back on Israel again. And Israel has not been replaced. Israel has not been cast aside. They are God's people. They will always be God's people because the the blessing upon Israel through Abraham was totally unconditional. God said, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And then there was no condition whatsoever placed on that. And it says your seed will be numbered with the stars and numbered as the sand. So we see there is no condition on it. So we know that God has not thrown away Israel. Now we know he's let them go into captivity, full captivity twice, once in Babylon and then uh, when Romans uh, defeated them and spread them around, but they're still in existence and they're back in their country again. So we look at this and it says, in that day shall the branch of the Lord be beautiful and glorious and the fruit of the earth shall be excellent. The branch of the Lord almost always refers to Jesus as it does here. All right? And this is Isaiah four uh, two where we see it. Isaiah eleven one talks about the branch of uh, the, the branch of God and it says and there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse and a branch shall grow out of his roots and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him and the spirit of wisdom and understanding and the spirit and counsel and might and the spirit of the knowledge of the, and the fear of the Lord. So we see Jesus being referred to there. And then in Jeremiah, Jeremiah likes that term also. Likes that term also. I find Jeremiah. Huh? Yeah, I should have marked it, seeing like so this is a brand new Bible. Jeremiah 23, verse 5. Behold, the days come, says the Lord, that I will rise unto David, a righteous branch, a king, shall reign and prosper, and shall execute judgment and justice upon the earth. And in his days Judah shall be saved, and Israel shall dwell safely. And this is mine, whereby... His name whereby you shall call him the right the Lord our righteousness. So we see Jesus again being pictured here I, uh, Jeremiah thirty three Verse fifteen In those in those days and at that time I will cause the branch of of righteousness to grow up unto Jacob, uh, David, and he shall execute judgment and righteousness in the land. And in those days shall Judah be saved, and Jerusalem shall dwell safely. And this is the name wherein she shall be called the Lord our righteousness. Many names, but is this one of the official names? uh, This is one that Jesus is known of as with the Old Testament. Uh, but by the same token as you said there are many names and Jesus is known by uh, Jesus and or God himself are known by a bunch of names Uh, and most of the names really go into to show us who he is all right the the branch that what comes out of the root and the root is God and then we are the branches off of Jesus he is the vine we are the branches and yeah, so, yeah, I know, but I still like when you read it, I just don't think that before. well, only because we know when you take it in full context on yeah. what it says. Uh, in Zechariah 3 8, it says, Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your fellows that sit before you, and they for they are men wonder at. For behold, I will bring forth my servant the branch, and behold, the stone that I have laid before Joshua upon one stone shall be seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave the engraving thereof," says the Lord of hosts. "I will remove the iniquity of the land in one day." So it talks about Jesus, the Branch, and the removing of of his of it. And in in Zechariah six, can't read my own writing. <laughs> Must be twelve. Seems so. It says Branch in great, big, bold letters. And speaking to him, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold the man whose name is the branch, and he shall grow up out of the place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Even he shall build the temple of the Lord, and he shall bear the glory, and shall sit and rule upon his throne, and he shall be a priest upon his throne, and counsel of peace shall be between them both. And this is Jesus joining the priesthood Zachariah with the king, Zechariah 6.12. It's one of his names, one of his names. And this is the wonderful thing when you get to study, I mean, a great study in the Bible is to study the names of God. Uh, uh, Abraham called, called God Jehovah Jireh, my provider. He's Jehovah Shalom, the God of peace. Uh, his banner, Jehovah Nisan, my God my banner. He's got so many names and they all show his character and who he is by his names. And this is one thing, in the, especially in the, in the Old Testament, we can oftentimes look at these names and look at the meanings behind names because God places great importance on names. Abraham's was, his, was, was what Abram, Abram's name was changed to. Sarah was Sarai before she became Sarah. Sarah. And uh, Israel was Jacob. Israel, one who prevails with God, and Jacob, heel grabber. <laughs> and God changes names frequently of people. And the greatest thing in the scriptures is that in Revelation, it tells us that he will give us a name in heaven that is special for us. And knowing what he's always done in the past means it'll be a name that represents the character that we have and, and before God because he always changes the name to something that is precious between him and them and shows the character that he's building into them. You know, none of us will be called lazy or, or slothful or loser. You know, he's got a beautiful name for us for who he's developing us into being. You know, Faithful, right, you know, uh, cared for, whatever it might be that he gives us, but there will be a name that Jesus will give us in heaven. And when we look at all the different people whose names were changed, we go look at the preciousness of their names when they're changed to it. And we're going to see that. God's got a special name for us in heaven, each one of us individually. And probably only he could name, name a million people with a special name for each one of them and, and, and know that it's special for them. But it says, in that day shall the branch of the Lord be beautiful and glorious. And I love this, this whole idea of glory, honor, beauty, you know, and oftentimes we'll sing, you know, we sing about Jesus' name being so precious. You know, uh, there's just something about that name. Uh, uh, we sing the song, Jesus, Jesus, you know, and we just lift up his name and how precious his name is. And it says, in that day, he's going to be glorious and honored. And this is when he's going to be ruling as king of the world in, in his beauty and in his, in, his, in his perfect perfection. And he's going to be seen. And right now we worship him by faith. And we have a relationship with him that is not just by faith, but you know we have that relationship that really tells us who he is. But it'll be wonderful when he's actually seen of all people. And he'll be glorious, beautiful, you know, very precious words that he gives us glory, honor, splendor, dignity. (laughs) And then it says, and the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and comely for them that are escaped. Of Israel and this fruit of the earth literally means the remnant that has been delivered the the people okay Jesus is there he's glorious he's he's beautiful and it says and those that survive and we've talked about this we know that just by looking at revelation and how many people die at, at least 66% of the population of the world will die during the tribulation period this is the Israelites and Mostly, mostly Israelites, but I think there'll be some Gentiles in this, but it'll be mostly Israelites who Escaping from this because that's who's God's focused on at that point. We do have the 144,000 evangelistic uh, Jews reaching out and and bringing people to God. We've got an angel running around the heavens declaring declaring the gospel so there will be Gentiles but you've got to remember the only way to get through the tribulation period and enter into the thousand year reign of Christ is to not take the mark of the beast. And if you don't take the mark of the beast, Satan is gonna be killing people who don't take his mark. So a very small remnant of people are going to enter into the millennial kingdom. Because the only way to get there as a human being alive is to not take, is not take the mark. Now we as Christians will be coming back with Christ, but we will have our glorified bodies and we will be as the angels at that time without the sin nature and without the desire to be disobedient and our bride will be Jesus himself or, or the husband will be Jesus himself. So we won't really be part of this whole environment because we have been glorified at that point and have our glorified bodies and we will be ruling with Christ. So it's like a whole different world. It's a whole different world that's going to be there. It's going to be returned very much to like, like the time before Eden. In many ways, lifespans are going to be be increased to, to where people are going to live the eight, nine hundred years. I can't remember where it says, but one of the scriptures says that if a man dies at a hundred years old, he'll be, consider, he'll be considered a child. Okay, so during the millennial kingdom, there's this period when lifespans go back to full time. We have a perfect government. And a, he's ruling with an iron rod, which means that he's going to keep sin in place. Uh, Animals will probably go back to their original state of being vegetarians. And we'll see a whole different world. And you're right, it's going to be a different world. It's going to be a very different world. You've got God himself ruling in the form of Jesus Christ. We've got the Church, His bride helping him rule. We've got the angelic world, which whether we see or not, I don't know. But they're going to be still serving him. And then you're going to have this handful of people that came through the tribulation period Honoring God enough to not take the mark of the beast and then they are going to fill the world They will be cast into to hell, waiting the final judgment uh, Taking the mark of the beast is an automatic sentence to hell No, no redemption at that point. Yep. When Christ comes they will be cast out. They will be cast out Satan will be bound for a thousand years. We imagine what that would be a whole thousand years without any problems with Satan and the demons causing problems. But we still, as we we're going to find out, we still have human beings with the sinful nature yeah. alive. But he says there's going to be, the, the ones that are going to be left are going to be excellent and comely. And this excellent is moral excellency. okay? And comely is just, you know, they're humans. <laughs> God loves humans for whatever reason he loves us. And uh, gives a great description of them. And they that are escaped or delivered. They're the remnant. The remnant that makes it through the tribulation period. And we want to keep this in mind. God always has a remnant of followers. This is the theme throughout the scriptures. Even when things get really bad, there's a remnant that are following him. Now in the days of Noah, it was one man and his righteousness covered his family. (laughs) Uh, But we see it all through the book of Judges, when Israel sins and falls away. There has to be some remnant because the remnant is the one that brings up the fact that this is God and we need to repent and and come back to him. Uh, Elijah on Mount Carmel, uh, after Mount Carmel, goes and gripes to God, God, I'm the only one that's following you. And God says, go back to what I told you to do. They've got 5,000 who haven't bent their knee. Okay, he's always got a remnant in place. During the Dark Ages, when the Catholic Church reigned and was taking people further and further away from the Bible, there was an underground group of Christians following Jesus and holding on to the doctrines in the Bible, a remnant of God during that period of time. And all through history, God has always had a remnant. Now, sometimes the remnant expands and becomes what looks like a majority. But even then, I think sometimes the majority is not following God either. They're putting religious practices into place and forgetting God, and there's still just a remnant that follows after him. And I believe this is true. Uh, Barnum says that he believes that there's only 50% of those who profess Christ are truly saved, and I think he's way too high. I think it's closer to probably 10% or maybe 20% uh, that are actually true believers in God. And that's my judgment. He did it through... Because you start talking to a lot of Christians, and most of them don't believe the word of God, don't have a relationship to, with God at all, and you're going, well, what do you believe in? Now, we got whole denominations that don't believe the Bible and don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God, so why are they Christian? You know, if you're not going to be like Christ and follow Christ, how can you claim to be a Christian? And what's special about him anyway if you don't believe he's God? So why would you want to follow him? And then they don't believe the Bible's true, so what are you putting your hope and faith in? You know, and when I meet people like that, I'm going, how can you be a Christian? What, what what does that mean to you to be a Christian? Because a Christian is a Christ follower, one who is putting yeah, his life in the, in, the, in, the, in the word. And uh, so he's saying they're coming out. There's a remnant that's come through. And verse 3, and it shall come to pass that he that is left in Zion and he that remains in Jerusalem shall be called holy and even everyone that is ridden among the living in Jerusalem. So again, we're talking about this coming out. And they're focusing mostly on Israelites and, the, and Jerusalem. Zion, remember, is another name for Jerusalem. Okay, So this is, in, this is following the normal poetry of the, of the Hebrew people, which is called parallelism, parallelism. They say the same thing twice. And if you're going through the Old Testament, you'll see this a lot. God says something, and then it's repeated. Uh, it's poetic. That's a form of poetry in, in uh, Hebrew. I know something in this Bible here. A lot of words are, uh, I forget the term. Italics. When you see in the older King James Bibles, letters that are in italics is that they're are added there for your understanding. They are not part of the Hebrew, Hebrew Bible. So if you really want to just read it, it this particular sentence that we looked at would read, And it shall come to pass, left in Zion, and remained in Jerusalem, shall be called holy, everyone that is written among the living in Jerusalem. So the italics words are there kind of to help us in our English understanding. So that is something to be aware of when you're reading a Bible that has the italics in it. And if you read the italics and it doesn't seem to make sense, try reading it without because those are words added and usually they're valuable to help us make it easier to understand. Sometimes they mess up the interpretation of the the verse. And in the older King James Bibles, if you see Lord written out in capital L-O-R-D, that would be the word Yahweh or the tetragram that the Jews do not pronounce, Y-H-W-H. And it's the name of God for his existing always. And it's a name that the Jews do not pronounce. There's no vowel markers on it, so nobody really even knows how it's supposed to be pronounced. And the Jewish, when they read, when they read it and they come across that name and they're reading out loud, will substitute Adonai for it, which means Lord, uh, rather than the word for God. And uh, kind of interesting, if you read anything written by a Jewish person, when they, even when they're in English, They'll write G-D. They won't, they won't put the, the O in there because they, even in English, they don't want to say the word God. <laughs> During the 80s, there was a great big Yahweh-only movement that if you, weren't, if you weren't praying to Yahweh and you were saying God rather than Yahweh, you weren't talking about the right God. Be very careful of those type of things you know, because that would be the same thing. Okay, we worship Jesus. Okay, wonderful. But if we're going to follow that same principle, we need to be worshiping Yeshua his Hebrew name, not his his Greek form of his name. And if we wanted to really follow it in, then the English version of his name is not Jesus. It would be Joshua. So you get into some really strange beliefs. If you really want to start pushing this to its limit, God knows when you're referring to him. (laughs) Okay. And, you know, they, they try to make this big deal because, you know, you have Baal and Ashtoreth and... Gemesh and all these different gods out there that would that you could use the term God for but you know what God knows when you're talking to him he doesn't he's not going to say well you prayed to God which God were you praying to were you praying to me or were you praying to to Baal or Astaroth? I just don't know I'm totally confused on what you mean uh, yeah. the one who knows everything knows that we're talking about him that gives you you know, the, the italics you know man made extras the whole thing with Jesus when you hear people you know, getting really uptight about it, it is really a foolish thing to get uptight about. But it's because we deal with so many different languages, and it's, uh, I've had one person get mad at me because when I, you know, they go, well, you shouldn't change any word because I take out the these and thous and put you in there instead. And they go, well, you're changing the words. I go, no, I modernize the English that, that we want to. Well, you can't do that. I'm going, well, fine, then will better start reading Hebrew and Greek, and, and nobody will understand what I'm talking about at all because, We're we're dealing with a translation. And this is what we've always got to remember, that it's a translation. We've got to be careful about how picky we get about these words and names. Because if we really wanted to, and like I say, if we get through these and every once in a while bring up this name means something. Well, if we really wanted to be really picky about it, we should be translating all those names into what they mean to help people understand them better. And that would really be strange. I would not even want to run the genealogies trying to change them into the, you know, taking that one word and making it into the three or four words that of what it means. Uh, people don't like the genealogies already. <laughs> uh, when I study, I do get into those, though. I want to know what those names mean because names so often had significance. And so just be careful. If somebody's getting really bent out of shape about using Yahweh or Jehovah, just let them. <laughs> You're not going to win the argument with them because they're that picky about it because they're so stuck on one particular way of doing things. And you won't win an argument with them. You won't, it won't matter. So don't even engage in that kind of an argument. And like I say, I grew, I was Christian during the whole Yahweh only movement. You know, that everybody was trying to go to, got to pray in the name of Yahweh. You've got to use Yahweh. When you see God in there, you use Yahweh. So just a little, little bit of help on that. So when you do come across these people that are really picky about these things, you'll know where they're coming from. And yes, in one sense, they're, they're right. His name is Yahweh in the, in the Old Testament. But that translates to God in English. So it's not a big deal. And if you really want to make a big deal about Yahweh, then you better make a big deal out of Jesus, which is Greek, and call him Joshua, which is our translation of Yeshua. And if you really want to go with the Hebrew name for him, then you better go with the Hebrew name of Jesus. And this is why it's really funny because they'll get so inconsistent. One's really important and the other one's not. But it says here that it shall come to pass that he that is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem shall be called holy or set apart. Even everyone that is ridden among the living of Jerusalem. Basically those who are still alive at the end of the tribulation period, entering into the millennial kingdom. And this comes from the the Jewish idea of the Book of Life. We talk about the Book of Life. When the Jewish people would go to war, everybody's name would be written in the Book of Life. And then as they died in battle, their name would be scratched off the Book of Life. And at the end, they would know who, you know, if your name was still in there, those would be the people that would be rewarded for having gone to battle, the ones who had lived and lived through the battle. They actually had a book of life. So when when God talks about his book of life, there's a lot of information in there that if we know what it's referring to, everybody who's ever lived had their name in the book of life, and if they rejected Jesus Christ, they're stretched out of the book of life. So all those that are written in this book of life are going to be called holy. And verse 4, And when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and shall have purged the blood of Jerusalem from the midst thereof by the spirit of judgment and by the spirit of burning. He's going to clean up those people just as he does with us as Christians. He comes in, he covers us with the blood of Jesus, makes us a new creation, and then puts the Holy Spirit in us to change the way we think, just as he said here, the spirit of judgment. What what two things does the spirit do when he comes in? He Convicts us of our sins and helps us to change our way of thinking and the way we act. Spirit of judgment. He comes in and He convicts of sin. He enlightens, He quickens, and strengthens us. And then what happens to those who reject Jesus Christ? He's the spirit of burning. He burned, they're sent to hell for eternity. And He puts judgment upon them. But even for us at times, He puts a burning in us and, and our conscience and says, You've done wrong. Because the desire is for us to be repentant. And so God is going to come in. He's going to wash away the filth of the people. And then, what a beautiful picture. They've rejected him. They've been, they've been hard. And it says he's going to make them. Those that come in are going to be seeing him. And at that time, they're going to believe in Jesus. <laughs> there won't be any no faith involved in this. They're going to have seen him coming from the clouds in the middle of the victor, uh, and being victorious in a battle that they thought they were going to be totally killed and they're going to believe in Jesus by sight now five hundred years later their children may not believe in Jesus but and probably won't you know many of them won't because at the end of the thousand year millennial kingdom, a lot of people are going to turn against Jesus to go to battle and you know how easily and people forget uh, and you know, we've read in various places in Judges where, if you remember, what Gideon said when he's talking to the angel, "Where is the God who our our, our forefathers talk about, who delivered delivered out of Egypt and who split the Red Sea and did all these all these marvelous works?" And you know, and they're only 300 years out from that that event, and he's saying, "Well, where is the God that does all this?" And we see it over and over in the Scriptures where people go, yeah, "We." Where is this God that's done all these miracles? And this is something I keep bringing up for us. We need to be very careful ourselves that we keep a record of what God has done in our life so that we don't forget what he's done. Because it is so easy for us to go, God, I just don't know where you are. Everything's been miserable and nothing goes right, God. I don't even know if you're out there anymore. And we do that so easily if we don't remember and this is why God keeps bringing up in the, in the scriptures, remember, 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 recall, think back. <laughs> you know, know that I am God and remember what I have done, not just in the past, but in our own lives. Because I don't know if you've been there, but I've been there at times where you're going along and it just seems like God has not done anything for you at all. It's only been last week that he did something really big for you, but you, for, your, your face is against all the bad things and you can't even remember what God has done for you. And you're thinking, oh man, God, do you, well, do you ever do anything? And God's saying, well, what about yesterday? What about last week? You know, last month? Uh, you know, have you forgotten that quickly? And, and we do, we forget that quickly. You know, and, and it says, He will send the Spirit to remind, to quicken in judgment. And verse 5 And the Lord will create upon every dwelling place in Mount Zion and upon her assemblies a cra- cloud of smoke by day and a shining and a shining of a flaming fire by night and upon all the glory shall be a defense. God will create. And this is to create from something. This isn't the word that he uses for creating out of nothing as he did with the beginning of the world when he created it. But it says God will create. And this should sound very familiar to anybody who's read the Exodus story. A cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. God will create a visual picture of what is leading. The the Jewish people had it real easy in the desert. They did not have to wonder where they were going. They did not have to wonder if they were gonna find water because God led them clearly and then protected them with this cloud and the fire. But he's saying, God will create, during the millennial kingdom, there will be a very strong leading of God that people will be able to follow. And during the millennial kingdom, from everything I can read, there is no need for faith the way we do. God's going to be there. He's going to be leading very clearly. He's going to be protecting. And then this last part of it says, for upon all... The glory shall be a defense or a covering. The defense literally here is a tent or a dwelling place. God's glory will be a literal protection for people. Satan, is in, Satan has been cast, cast away for a thousand years, which means all the demons are cast away. You know, this is going to be that time that man has been dreaming of, utopia. Utopia. No, no sin nature, no, no death and disease, no, no problems with human beings, just your own inner sin nature. And that would be bad enough, our own sin nature. But this is, you know, if you've ever heard somebody, well, if we just had a perfect environment, everybody would be good. Perfect environment coming in, and we know at the end of that perfect environment, man's gonna re- rebel against God in spite of being in a perfect environment. We are going to prove that we were no better off than Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve had a perfect environment, walking with God every night and still sinned against him. Man in this perfect environment is going to turn around and sin against God when when given a chance. It is just what man does. Adam and Eve had no excuse. They had no sin nature. They had no sin nature to fall. During the millennial kingdom, they will want to do evil. They'll want to do bad. But God is going to rule with an iron rod, and He's going to be very visible. This is what you're supposed to do. Did I get you right that uh, even the remnants during the millennium will have no need for faith? They will have less because they're seeing Jesus. They're seeing this. They're seeing the. uh, They still have faith. Maybe I misquoted on that. They still need faith, but. They're walking by sight as well. They've got Jesus right there. They've got the tower, the cloud, and the pillar by night leading them. They're going to have direct forces, but they still need the faith. Maybe I misspoke it. I I didn't mean to say no faith because even the children of Israel, while they were wandering through the wilderness, had to have faith in God, even though they were walking by sight. They were being walked everywhere they were supposed to go. They were being fed every morning and every night with the manna and the quail and, and the water flowing from the rock that they carried with them that, that produced a river of water to, to water three and a half million people. Their faith was, was not needed to be as strong. i uh, I'm for sure they're gonna have that sin nature. Right, there's still gonna be the sin nature in the millennial kingdom, There's still, but much of what they're doing is living by sight. You've got Jesus Christ sitting on the throne. You've got the leading, guiding light and and, and cloud. And there's not as I want to be careful how I say it because if I said it, I didn't mean it to be no faith. It, literally, the, their faith is more by sight. They're they're living by what they see. And it's going and that's why Satan will have such an easy time tempting so so many of them at the end. Because there's going to be those that said, well, you know, especially the first ones, they're going to have seen Jesus come in glory. They're going to know that he's the Messiah. He was their savior. And they're going to turn to him instantly. But their children is going to be, uh, well, mom and dad's crazy. They thought they see, saw this, our king come down from the sky and, and win a great big battle. And by the way, what's a battle? You know, we don't know what a battle is because there's no war during this period of time. So my parents, our parents are talking about some craziness. You know, there were, there were people killing each other, and, 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 this, and they're saying this Jesus came from the sky. <laughs> so then, do they just think Jesus is like a regular person? They will know something special about him, but yeah. it will become more of a mythology. Yeah. You know, our parents talk about all these things, but we don't really understand what they're talking about. No war, no, di- no, no diseases are going on, the world is, not perfect, because we still have sin nature, but as close to perfection as is going to be on this earth, and they will become this air of what are they talking about. And history. it would be history. It would be, it'd be so far history, you know, uh, they, you know, they're talking about something that happened 600 years ago. What's you know what you know yeah. they they must have lost their marbles. Maybe they maybe they're getting Alzheimer's or something. You know, there's going to be these kind of thoughts going on in their mind. But I'm just saying, you understand what can happen and why they will go this way. Yeah, the, kind of those happened. are those are the Jesus freaks. You know, yeah. they they really believe you know something. Yeah. You know, they believe all this. They think they they think they came back with him. You know, it's. Yeah. Who knows how this will all be rationalized in their mind, but you know their sin natures and we know that they'll rationalize it somehow. Yeah, can make anything. We, can make e- we can make ourselves believe anything given enough, given enough time and, and thought, because it talks about the child sitting and playing with the asp and the lion le- laying with the sheep, you know. It'll be a totally different world than anything we can comprehend, and it'll be the utopia that man thinks he wants. But they're going to reject it when, it when it comes down to the bottom line. There will be millions that reject it. And again, after a thousand years of reproduction and everything, there will be millions of people on this world. I one time took and I played around with projections on a spreadsheet to figure out how many people were on the world at the time of the flood. And with some very, very conservative, like one baby every 20 years over a period of you know 600 years of of reproduction, which was probably way too low, I still came up with a million and a half people on the world at the time of the flood. Now, if you bring those numbers down to a more reasonable baby every two or three years, you could be talking trillions of people at the time of the flood, and the the flood happened 1,500 years after creation from two people, from From only two people, okay? You're starting with, Hundreds, thousands, you know, a couple hundred thousand for a thousand years of reprodu- reproductive capability. There's going to be millions or trillions of people though, because there's also no war and death to wipe them out. Well, that's true. Okay. But will still disease. will still be, apparently there'll be things because it does say that a man who dies at 100 years old will be considered a child. So there's still death, but nothing like what we're used to. So you figure a million year uh, a thousand years uh-huh. with years. with a couple of hundred thousand people making it through the millennial kingdom they're going to fill this earth again yeah. in a thousand yeah. years. Yeah. The graph of the population of the world is almost flat line for a long time and then all of a sudden it goes almost straight up. And we're at that point where it goes straight up because there's just so many people reproducing that that line goes up and it took a long time for the uh, eight people to replenish the earth. And now we're, now we're really replenishing the earth. If you really think about it, there are places where there's a lot of people. There's still a lot of places where there's practically nobody. And so there's plenty of room on this world for more people. But there, there's plenty of room on this world. There's plenty of food on this world if it was to be properly used and, and managed. Uh, so when Jesus is reigning, there won't be any problems with that <laughs> being properly managed. But it is kind of interesting when we look at all the stuff going on and we look at what's you know, going on in this world and yes we have places that are densely populated and we have lots of this world that are practically nobody in it. God says there's plenty of room and if we just took care of each other there'd be more than enough food, more than enough resources. If we quit wasting all our resources there'd be plenty of resources. Yeah. During this period of time he says that there's going to be the cloud and the fire and they're going to be the protection they're going to be the protector. They're going to show them what to do. They're going to show them how to live. It's going to be their shade and their covering. And a very powerful picture because he's going all the way back to the exodus with them and to say, hey, remember. You know, remember God leading you, leading us? You may not remember it, but remember the stories that your parents told you and your grandpas. And, and at this point, great, 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 great grandpa you know, told you. And then in verse 6, and there shall be a tabernacle for a shadow in the daytime from the heat and for a place of refuge and for a covert from the storm and from rain and a tabernacle, a shelter, a shelter. There shall be a shelter for you during the daytime and so that you'll be shaded and, and kept cool and protected from the heat and then a place of refuge or a hiding place and a covert from the storm. It is a sheltered place. Place of covering for them to go into and be hidden' they won't have houses or... I'm sure they'll have houses as well but but what he's really putting out in this is you're wanting to be protected by me i'm going to be your protection because not necessarily no they're not they're not sitting they're not sitting under the <laughs> they're not sleeping and sitting under the bridges they're not you know they're not they're not sitting into makeshift tents uh but when we look at this, he says the tabernacle. The tabernacle is the place where God worshiped. The tabernacles for the Jews brings forth this idea of the wandering in the wilderness where they set up their, their tents and their temporary dwellings. And then on the Feast of Tabernacles, even to this day, the Orthodox Jews will go set up this little booth tabernacle outside and, and sleep in it overnight. And it's to commemorate the wandering in the wilderness. and but we see that, and this is just a place of protection. And God says, I'm your protection. And then it says that you will just be hidden away. You'll be hidden away in a, in a protection against the storms. And again, this has been a theme that God has all through the Old Testament, especially. David in the Psalms is always talking, run to God for your refuge, into the tower, into the into protection. And, and Paul's statement on it that we are in Christ, where we are protected and take our refuge in Christ. This picture is all through the scripture that we are to hide in God. And here's, during that period of time, he's just bringing that same picture. I am your covering. I am your protection. You're going to be hidden in me. And this whole idea of the cloud that covers, leads and covers, that protects. The fire that leads and protects. You know, this is very important for us to understand. We, in our day, walk by faith and we hide in God. Our flesh is to be crucified. We're to be in Christ and live in a very special relationship with God. And here he's saying that same thing is going to happen. During the millennial kingdom, they're going to be hidden in Christ if they want to be. And it's going to be actually harder for them not to be hidden in Christ because it's not as much of a faith statement because you've got Christ there. You've got his church ministering in their, in their glorified state. You've got all this stuff going on and God's saying, I'm your, I'm your protection. I'm your covering. And then yet to see people reject him when everything is less faith and more by sight is going to be an amazing thing to watch, and yet we know that he says they're going to do it. They're going to reject him. They're going to go to battle against him. Now, will it be the majority at that point? Probably not. But if we follow the scripture, the ones who follow him are always the, are always the minority, are always the remnant. So it could be at the end of the millennial kingdom that there's only going to be a remnant that to choose. Chooses to obey God. Well, that's, that would be amazing. I mean, God is all over the place. And still choose. and visually all over yeah, the place. Not yeah. not by faith, and not yeah. by anything, but you know, Adam and Eve rejected Him, and they walked with Him every night. All through history, Israel has has rejected Him over over periods of time. Our country has rejected Him, given enough time this country started very strong with god very strong french philosopher i can't remember his name came to america and said you cannot separate american and their politics and their way of life from god he said they're just so interwoven you cannot separate the two and that, and that was in the late 1700 that was late in the late 1700s now now they're torn apart completely will it be a surprise at the end of the millennial kingdom that people will reject god unfortunately no it's really sad that they will, because it is less by sight and more uh, less by faith and more by sight. You've got Jesus right there. You've had a perfect government, and they still will not be satisfied. And this is the desire of all the educated people in today's world: is that, hey, if we just had a perfect life, that there were just no bad things, people would be good. The last big lie of Satan: that's going to go. Okay, I'm going to give you a thousand years of perfect. You know, or fairly close to perfect living, and you're still going to reject me. You're still going to reject my ways. And the Jews, when they see Jesus coming down, will recognize that he's their Messiah. Uh, Zechariah tells us that. Uh, Micah tells us that that they're going to recognize him. And I think it was Zechariah that said they're going to look upon him and say, "Who caused these wounds that you that you bear?" And he goes, "I got them from the house of a friend." He's Jesus bears the the marks of his crucifixion apparently. Through all of eternity, he's going to bear the marks of what it costs to redeem us. I can tell you, I'm so glad he's going to take the tears from our eyes because I don't know that I could look at Jesus for eternity and not just break down in tears knowing that I'm only here because of the, you know, in heaven because of the stripes that he's bearing. And it's going to cause us to be very reverential toward him when we do see it because he's going to bear those. In the Revelation, it says he stands in in heaven as the lamb slain from the foundation of the world and he, that's in heaven that he stands that way bearing the marks it's been said that the only man-made thing in heaven is going to be the stripes on Jesus, the, the wounds on Jesus you know, we caused him pain that you know, and, and stripes that he's going to bear for eternity and he's going to bear them with great honor because his bride was purchased by those stripes and that's going to be, blow our minds and understand the trinity and that's sense. Have one individual that's visible in stripes, and uh, the Holy Spirit isn't going uh, to appear as an individual. when we get there, we'll know how we see the Trinity in its in its in its whole being. We know that on this physical plane, Jesus is the only part of the God uh, the Trinity that we can see. When we're in heaven, Jesus is going to sit at the right hand of the Father. So there will be something where the Father sits. And the Father will probably just be the light, maybe. Again, we have no idea. He's going to sit on the throne. throne. He's going to sit on the throne. So there has to be something there to sit on the throne. And what will we see of the spirit? We're in a whole other realm. So we probably will see something of the spirit. How that will be revealed, who knows? Uh, And this is why I'm not a very imaginative person anyway. So I don't dwell much on what I'm going to see you know, I've heard people that go, well, I picture God as a great big man with a white beard and, and, you know, and I'm going, well, I'm glad you do. I don't, I don't, I don't, I've never really tried to picture God. All I know about him is I'm going to want to worship him when I see him. So whatever that is, whatever that means, I'm going to want to worship him. How how exactly he's going to appear to us, who knows? Because the Bible doesn't really cover much on that. And how could it? Well, yeah, how, how can you describe it? Uh, yeah. It's, it's it, as I said, you know, try to, try to describe snow to an aborigine who's never even had a concept of barely having water fall from the sky, much less solid white flakes that, that cover everything and are cold. You know, he's not going to understand it. God tries to give us some description of heaven. So we know there's some kind of forms, but we don't know much about heaven, and it's hard for us to even begin to comprehend because how can you describe it? How can you describe something that we cannot He can he can tell us this is as close as you can get. I'm going to describe it by the best things in your world, and even those are a pale imitation of what you're going to find when you get there. But we think about this, you know, and I've thought about this several times, you know, because I've been walking with God as long as I have. How are the people that knew me in my twenties going to see me in heaven compared to those who now know me in my in my 50s? And How will I be known? Because I'm I'm in many ways a totally different person spiritually, and every aspect of me is totally different than it was 30 years ago. How will those people know me? And yet we're told they're going to know us. So there's something about even the way we're going to appear in heaven that's completely different than anything that we have on this world. I think that's kind of when the spirit interacts with other people. Holy spirit us. We'll know the Holy spirit us. And exactly. That's one of the things that I know when I meet somebody where the spirit just connects right off the bat, I know that I'm dealing with somebody who is truly a fellow believer. Uh, and it doesn't always happen and there's you know, but there's those times when it's just like you're talking to this person and you go, I know this person's a Christian. Yeah. Yeah, I know this person. This person is part of the family. And I'm not saying that, that, that other people that are Christians, you know, where it doesn't have an aren't. But there's certain times when you just go, yeah, well, I, I, I'm in the, this is a family member. I <laughs> shared this before. I love the fact that you can, as a Christian, go all over the world and find other Christians and feel like, feel like you're at home. Uh, all over the world, all over the country. It's happened to me more than once when I've traveled okay, God, show me the church to go to, and he puts me in front of a group of people, and it's just wonderful. There's an instant yeah. family connection, and I don't even know them. It's just, yeah. but they're family, yeah. Yeah. and it's, you know, the whole thing changes in the way you you, you act around around them because they're family. Yeah. You're, at oh, yeah. Yeah, you're at ease. Yeah, you're at ease. You're You're with family. There's not this, and I'm not saying everybody that it doesn't happen to is not a Christian, but there's just, when you are in close fellowship with God, the spirit will reach out and touch those that are in close fellowship with God as well. That is when things become real, when you're in a real relationship with God, and it all of a sudden has taken you to another level. And I was very fortunate because I got into it very young in, in life. I just loved being around God and God's people and the word. And other than about a two-year period of my life, it's always been that way, and as I've said before if you'd have told me as a teenager that to be any time that I would never spend with God I would have laughed at you but yet I got wrapped up in the world yeah. got wrapped up in being a workaholic and justified it I was meeting the needs of my family and and all of that stuff I had all kinds of justifications for what I was doing but it wasn't right and you know we, we all get in this is why we have to be very careful when we look at others and say they're, they're saved or not saved. that's not for us to judge if somebody acts like they're not saved and, and they say they're a Christian, I'm still going to treat them more like they're unsaved and make sure I make a point of, you know, the, you, you know you've got to trust in Jesus and, and those kind of words. But I'm not going to say they're not saved. That's between them and God. Because they might have meant it when they made their prayer to God and just totally went off the deep end and, and never grown. But if they came to Christ, they're his. You know, when, because if somebody had looked at Peter after he denied Jesus and went back to fishing, they're going, well, you're not, how can you be a follower of Christ? You're, you've totally abandoned him. And yet he goes to Peter and calls him back. Calls him back and says, you're mine. And he, Jesus is, doesn't lose anybody that makes their commitment to him. He'll, he'll let you come back. He's been calling you all the while. He's watching for you to come back. The, the prodigal son is the great example. When the son comes back, he welcomes him yeah. and doesn't say, well, when, okay, yeah, you're right. You're going to be my servant for a few years. You're going to prove that you deserve to be my son. No, thank you. Welcome back. You're my son. Let me put the ring on your, fi- the family ring on your finger or we're going to clothe you. We're going to clean you up. We're going to have a big party because you've returned. And that's the way God is with any of his children that return to him. Individual church members and, and stuff may try to hold it against him, but that's wrong too. We need to be able to forgive those that return back and say, yes, God can forgive you. I'm going to forgive you. And God, you know, the wonderful thing about God is he doesn't say, okay, I'm putting you back on step one when you fell from step uh, 18 or whatever. He goes, welcome back, son, daughter, (laughs) right back up to where you fell from because he knows we can't keep ourselves. He knows that we can't. And if we walk out, you know, try to walk out of his, out of his path. He's sitting there holding our hand the whole time, trying to drag us back, and we're fighting against him, but we still can't get as far away from him as we might want to get, and we end up coming back to him for one of his, truly one of his children. You never feel at home, even if you try to walk away and go back into some sin, you never, you never feel like you belong there. You know, you're, you're under conviction. You know you don't belong there. They know you don't belong there because you're not enjoying what they, what they think they're enjoying. Uh, it's like people who go back into drinking after they've known God. It's, they're, they're uncomfortable because they're, they know they're not supposed to be there. They know they're not supposed to be doing, doing it because it's sin to them because God took them out of it. And the people around them know that they're not enjoying it. and not, not one of them. And so you never connect back up and you, until you get back where you belong with God in a relationship with him and his family, you're not going to be in a place of comfort and joy. And then you come back to God and you repent, and it's like you never left. The greatest thing that happened to me after my walking away from God was when I came back, it was like, came right back to where God, did, where I left. Totally different church and everything, but I came back to teaching God and God putting the, the knowledge that had been in my head and expanding upon it, and it was like, God, why did I ever leave? This was, this, was, this, was, this was what I enjoy doing. I enjoy doing this. Why would I have ever done anything different? And I know that's a testimony of everybody who's done the same thing. When they backslid and they come back in and why did I ever, you know, and usually when you really truly repent, you come back at a deeper level and enjoy what you're going through with God even more. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. Lord, help us to walk with you. Help us to see you in all that we do. And guide us and lead us in all that we do and, and say in Jesus' name, amen.